Startcast is a podcast created by Start International, a non-governmental organization that has worked to create new connections and strengthen opportunities for advancing sustainability science across Africa and Asia for more than 25 years. The Startcast is one way we endeavor to bring informative, approachable, and free content to early and mid-career scientists working on issues of global sustainability. Season one of the Startcast focuses on strengthening knowledge relating to scientific proposal writing. Motivated by feedback from a diverse set of our partners from across the world, with this season we aim to address proposal writing challenges through tips and advice from a carefully selected group of scientists, practitioners, and funders who have extensive experience in this area. During this season, we will also be gathering insights from our guests about how our new reality of life during COVID-19 relates to scientific funding, conducting research, and writing proposals. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and do not necessarily represent the views of Start International. Hello, my name is Mary Thompson Hall, Senior Program Specialist at Start International, back now for Episode 4 of the Startcast. And today I'll be speaking with Jesse DeMaria Kinney, Deputy Director and Senior Expert on Climate Change Adaptation, Nature-Based Solutions, and Research for Impact at PlanAdapt. And we're going to be talking today about Jesse's work on research for impact or research into use and how he works with scientists to help them strengthen the impact of their work and to better communicate those impacts. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the Startcast. Hi, Mary. Pleasure to be here. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Everything's going well here in Geneva. And yourself? I'm doing fine here in Tennessee. Uh, so, to get things started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you're currently doing relating to research for impact? Um, sure, I can do that. And maybe before, just, just a little bit of a background here, um, of kind of what has gotten me into that. Uh, and that's just to say that I've always studied the natural sciences, but have worked more on the social side, working in formal, non-formal education and capacity development. Um, so I've been interested in the nuts and bolts of natural science. Um, I've always wanted to work with people. So somehow I've, I've always played a bridge between the science and policy and practice. And fortunately, that's something that I really enjoy, um, which is why I'm still doing it today. Um, and it's always interesting to find out how best to get someone to really hear a message or something new, um, something new to them. And so that takes me to my work today, which is focused more on knowledge brokering around climate change adaptation and particularly seeing how we can actually bring the evidence on climate change and the impacts of climate change to help inform adaptation actions in climate risk management. Great. And so just for some background, too, on um, on this topic, why we're talking about it in the first place here in the Startcast, is that on our consultative call and, and in, in some outreach we did with early career and mid-career researchers, uh, is that right now, when you see a call for proposals, you know, it's almost, well, it's pretty standard now that there is a required section on research for impact, where you need to describe the anticipated impacts of your research. Uh, and a lot of these researchers um, who are writing these proposals said that this section, writing that section is not something that they really learned how to do early on. Um, 
So they don't feel that they had enough training in that. Uh, and so first, can you tell me why you think this is becoming standard now and then why this is important? All right. So why is it standard now, the research impact sections, and why is it important? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'll try to address them kind of two in one. And I think, you know, why is it uh, important um, is clearly, you know, today we are at an unprecedented time in humanity when we're faced with multiple wicked problems. And I'm referring here to, of course, climate change. Um, biodiversity loss and on the brink of ecological collapse, um, as well as the growing social and, and economic inequalities. Um, and this, of course, has all then just been um, exacerbated by a solid dose of COVID-19 that we've received at the end of 2019. Um, and so each of these challenges touches on a natural and social and political systems. And each of those are complex systems that interact with each other to create even more complexity. So I think if we don't understand that complexity, um, that's something that uh, will leave us, I guess, with a gap in, in how to help remedy these situations or improve the situations. Um, so this then leads me to the need for, and call for transdisciplinary research, um, which I think is also increasing in, in recent years as with the call for research impact. And the transdisciplinary research, um, I think, really lends itself to the, the research impact, let's say, outcomes of actually wanting to bring together multiple perspectives to actually help contribute to changes um, in, in practice and policy and behaviors. So I think really people see the challenges that are before us. Um, and while we want information and more knowledge, we also realize that the research um, and even the investment in terms of, of you know, funds that go into the research actually needs to help bring about positive change in our lives today. And so this is kind of a, a situation where there is growing recognition and acknowledgement that in order to address these wicked problems in a, in a way that is most effective, you need to get a bunch of different perspectives on board uh, to get the intended impact that you want. Is that yes. a fair assessment? That yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, I guess, because we're faced with such complex problems today and people recognize the, the complexity of systems, um, that we also need then the research and kind of looking into these questions with that same complexity lens. Okay. And so on the surface, it can be, well, it sounds like, you know, pretty straightforward if you're intending to do a research project or or whatever type of project you have going on, that you should be able to explain the intended impacts of your research. But then once you start writing this section or, or plans for your impact, it can be quite confusing. And there's a lot of areas where you might not feel super comfortable putting in predictions. Can you give some reflections on why you think this is um, hard and why it's challenging? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one, I guess there are two, two key starting points that say, but the first one is, is that it's, it's imposing, you know, to come to think that you as an individual um, are actually potentially an agent of change, I think can be quite imposing to people. Um, we are often always taught and shown that, that there are other people who are leaders that there are other people who bring about changes. Um, but really, in the end, it's all of us who can contribute to making these changes actually happen. So 
I think that is is one of the big things that keeps people from from wanting to be able to let's say predict the impact of their work. Um, but then the also the other part is that we have to see ourselves again as part of this uh, this broader system, and that we also, um, as I said, can become an agent of change. So it's not actually saying that you're going to change the world, or maybe not even change something in your whole city, but perhaps you can contribute to a change within that system that helps kind of knock on down the system to contribute to, to changes that are actually bigger than your smaller piece of work. And and something, and again, some background, I have worked in the past with Jesse uh, around research into use and research for impact. And something that I found um, kind of difficult with this topic was, you know, coming from this place of, very reflexive research uh, and having this kind of discomfort level with thinking that you can predict how things will play out with the the data or the information that you generate with your research. Uh, you know, it's this kind of, you feel uncomfortable with these assumptions that you know what will happen. Can you kind of tell me how you've talked to people about that discomfort and um, and you know, what do you say to people that have that concern? Yeah. Um, well, yes, I mean, I think, I think one thing that actually helps very much and, and this, um, Mary, as you mentioned, we've worked together before. So, um, in this particular project of the adaptation at scale in semi-arid regions, um, SR, one of the tools that we use that I think actually helps people, um, see themselves in this bigger picture is actually a theory of change. And basically the idea of a theory of change is, is setting out what you foresee as the potential impact of your work beyond your sphere of influence or beyond what you can actually control. But then you plot it backwards to actually things that you can control. So I think one thing that really helps, um, because you're right, you know, we cannot foresee the future and we cannot foresee exactly when an individual research finding or research project is going to actually um, bring about a big change or where it's going to fit into a chain of, of changes, you know, that brings about a, a wider change, um, is that we have to be flexible. And what we do have to do is we just have to plot how we expect our work to unfold, but then we just have to track it and actually be um, be realistic about what's happening and, and not be afraid to change the research project um, as needed. And of course, I'm saying it's recognizing that that also means that the, the research funds, um, whether it be for an individual or a large project, um, those funds have to be actually flexible to allow to, to allow the research to change um, to change course as needed. And I think this is important too because when you're thinking then about designing new projects, and this goes back to something you said a few minutes ago, is um, one way I guess to get ahead of that kind of discomfort is to try to increase the number of perspectives of of people involved with the project uh that kind of contribute to that theory of change would that would that be fair so when you're designing the theory of change you need to make sure or it it's ideal if you can make sure that you're getting as many perspectives of the people involved with that work not the researchers themselves necessarily but the people that will be affected by um or influenced by that work, their perspectives need to be built into that theory of change as well. 
Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I would say, you know, that's, let's say, planning for impact. And I think what has to happen is you need to engage with those who need the change. <clears throat> and this also helps the people, um, as you said, maybe intimidated or, or just may not be too clear on how to see their impact. And I think that could also be part of the problem is that often we're actually trying to to see this impact when it might not be impacting us directly. So that is really challenging to do. So the best way to actually do it is to to engage with those, as I said, who are actually going to be affected by these changes. Um, and in fact, in the, the research for impact approach, um, or research into use approach, what we can say is it's all about doing research with people and doing research for people um, as opposed to doing research on people. I think this is so interesting because it, I think it is quite different, you know, than how things were done traditionally um, or conventionally in a lot of the sciences. And and there's probably a lot of areas where it can make people, uh, I keep saying uncomfortable, but that's not a bad thing when I'm saying it here. But, um, you know, like going into a situation as a researcher where you are or opening up your process early on to other voices and perspectives. I mean, because they, the, the idea of, you know, the vision for the impact of the work or the intended or desired impact of the work from your perspective might be something quite different than some of the people involved with the work itself. Um, and so I think this idea of flexibility and openness to that has got to be really important, but also really complicated. Yeah, I mean, again, going, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, real world systems. And even if we're looking at a smaller piece of a system, we're still actually operating within a system. So as we go about, um, you know, looking at um, a nonlinear complex system that is inherently unpredictable, uh, it's uncontrollable, you know, we can't foresee these future events. So what we have to do is we have to be able to, to work with the system. In fact, Donella Meadows, right? She, she calls it to dance with the systems. Um, and she has 14 principles that are to consider when dancing with this, when complex systems. And this is because we can't control it. We have to actually work with it and, and flow with it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's just something that, you know, previous generations of scientists would have somehow thought this was a really kind of different idea. Um, and I think it does speak to that need for very flexible and, and open funders too, because, because, you know, you have to kind of be respectful of the changes that people want um, and not just your own idea of what the right kinds of changes are um, when you're doing this sort of work. Um, so, do you have, like, in your work with Plan Adapt or previously uh, with ASAR uh, or otherwise, do you have any stories uh, you could tell us of scientists who you feel got this part right, this research for impact uh, work, or they're planning for it? Um, not necessarily that they predicted all the impacts of their work correctly, but that they approached this piece uh, of the work in a productive or effective way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, as I'm thinking about what you just mentioned of kind of this new generation, or at least, you know, let's say more conventional previous research hasn't had to consider, um, 
whether it's the transdisciplinary approach or the research for impact approach. Um, I think one, one interesting piece just to, to add here, and then this will actually lead me into to one example that, that comes to mind, um, is about checking your assumptions. And again, this goes out to when you're, when you're planning for your impact. Um, and if you do use a theory of change, um, whether it's a large scale, well thought out one, or just a, one that helps you think through your potential research processes is to actually check your assumptions. Um, and again, this goes back to the point you raised, Mary, about engaging with those, you know, who, who need to see the change because these assumptions, they can help you understand what these assumptions are. Um, and they can help you to make these assumptions explicit and to categorize them to see what you can do. Um, if there's something that's insurmountable or if there are ways that you can work around them. Um, again, that just goes back to being realistic in what you can achieve and what you can do with your research. Um, I think one example, and this does go back to, to the SR project, um, and in fact, there's numerous uh, examples that I could pull from, from there, as well as the overall, uh, the larger collaborative adaptation research initiative in Africa and Asia, the carrier program. Um, there's numerous examples of, of people really getting this right. Um, but one that I can think of is in, is in East Africa, the East African research team that had a, a regional uh, theory of change. Then they broke it down into country-level impact pathways, and this was to help ground the overall consortium theory of change and the regional one as well. Uh, but what they did is as they kept diving into the research, they kept narrowing and narrowing their focus as the research progressed. They didn't narrow their focus in terms of then dropping off areas of research. They continued to work on areas of research that were part of the overall research program, but they kept narrowing and narrowing the potential focus um, to help bring in other, let's say, elements of, of research for impact, um, such as strategic partnerships and communications, capacity development. They kept narrowing it down, um, so they actually became very impact-focused um, at the very end. And I think this led to some impressive results in terms of getting government buy-in and requests actually for contributions to, to other be policies or to sit on steering committees of government task force. Um, and so this all came really from setting out that, that vision of potential impact, um, staying that course while being flexible and getting more narrow and more focused as they go or as they went. And can you, um, just to dig into that a little bit more, like, what do you think, like, in practice? So, so I know there's, you know, the planning and theory of change and all of these pieces. Uh, but in practice, what do you think, uh, someone who is sitting down to write, you know, an impact section, what pieces do you think are really essential, um, that people can say that they are going to do uh, to make this work well. So I'm I'm thinking more along the lines of, so if you're doing a theory of change, like, are do you need to make sure that you are addressing diversity? Do you need to make sure that, you know, you're looking um, at geographic diversity, at cultural diversity? Uh, these types of things when you're building your 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 plan for this. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of, you know, what are things that make this work well uh, besides getting narrower and narrower, but what makes that happen well, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm rambling a little bit. 
No, that's, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I first, I think one, one important consideration here is, of course, keeping in mind, let's say, the scale of your research. You know, so are you a large um, multi-country research project or are you an individual, you know, working in a municipality doing your master's degree research or your postdoc um, looking in a region or, you know, province? Um, so I think that that scope or, or to say the scale of, of your research then, of course, has not going to affect your intended impact. Um, but yes, I mean, I personally am very much a fan of the theory of change approach just because of taking the time to actually set out the vision of your potential impact and how you can contribute as, as one piece of, of this bigger picture. Um, I think that really helps people actually sit back in, um, yeah, I mean, sit back and assess where their research is in terms of the starting point. And I think that's critical is to recognize that in your research proposal, as ambitious as you may be, um, and again, whether you're an individual large project, you're still one piece of the puzzle. So even a project um, such as ASAR, which was operating in seven countries with, I think, about 16 partners, we were still just, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to everything else that was happening, looking at climate change adaptation and even climate change adaptation in semi-arid regions. So I think it's important to, to recognize where your research sits. Um, and I definitely think that it's important to, to have your research, let's say, demand-led. So again, you know, what is your research contributing to? Because if it's just going to be academic knowledge, that's great. But it really then challenges you to actually have the impact aspect of your research. Because again, you're doing it for academic reasons. Whereas if there's a real world need that you're trying to contribute to change, then then you're that much closer from a starting point. Um, and then I think just the last point here, which I mentioned, is just be very, you know, check your assumptions. And, and just the reason that you do that is because um, it helps you also ground your research, um, I guess, let's say, pathway or how you could achieve impact. Um, and one very simple assumption is that you know, policymakers or decision makers are going to be receptive to evidence based on climate change research, um, or that policymakers are going to be willing to engage in community level stakeholders in a policy dialogue around adaptation. You know, those just might be unrealistic assumptions in some situations and others, they may be perfectly valid. But I think that awareness is important. Yeah, that's definitely a, an assumption that we, we know is um, does not always play out, uh, that way right now. Um, a couple of things on that. Is there a way uh, or tips for ways that you could, um, kind of bring in people to help you check your assumptions if you're an early career, mid career researcher? Do you think there are types of people or people in different positions that might serve as good resources for helping you kind of even identify your own assumptions? Um, yes. I mean, I, I guess first I, I would and should say, you know, obviously you're a supervisor or academic advisor, maybe one that would hopefully be able to guide you on that. Um, but then again, that's also assuming that they're also aligned with this thinking um, and also aware of that, which I'm sure many are, but there may be some that aren't. The other one, again, is this idea of doing research with people is if you are going to be doing a research project in a particular community or region, um, why not actually ask them, 
you know, you can go to the people you'll be doing the research with, I say with instead of on, to actually get their opinions about the assumptions that you've made. And again, if you do have an overall framework, and this kind of refers to the theory of change, that helps you also place um, that those assumptions within the bigger picture to help people understand where those assumptions are being made and how they fit in to the research itself. And something that I am kind of hearing coming out uh, a lot in what you're saying is there's a real importance of communication here and the way that you communicate uh, with different groups of people. Would you, um, do you have any insights on how you could, as an earlier mid-career researcher, kind of hone those skills for for kind of knowing how to approach this topic with people, um, with the you know community members or policymakers or even even at your own institution, people that perhaps haven't haven't had the experience with this type of work and maybe aren't fully on board with this approach. Yeah, I mean, first I would say. You know, communications in itself is a whole area. Um, so I, I think one thing that in kind of your points here, Mary, about where to look, I think are really important, actually, um, because when we talk about a researcher being able to engage with stakeholders and a researcher being able to communicate with stakeholders, um, I think what's what we must realize here is that, you know, researchers, I mean, not research because they're researchers, but nobody, you know, can do everything. So nobody's good at everything. Um, and in this case, you know, researchers may not be great at communicating to, a, let's say, a non-scientific audience. And that's perfectly fine. Um, so what you could do is you could appeal to maybe other people in your department, um, especially if there's a communications people. Um, you could appeal to them for some tips or maybe some templates on how to help you to communicate key, key aspects of your research. Um, and then, of course, there's courses that you could maybe find online. Um, I mean... This is kind of a plug, which I won't go into now, but the, the Research for Impact um, course, uh, the MOOC on Coursera, actually has a bit of kind of tips and some other pieces, but strategic communications is just one of the five elements. But there's many, many resources that can help researchers to improve their communications. And I think this speaks also to the, to the topic or theme from our last episode where we talked about you know, building successful teams. And one of the things we really um, heard about in that episode was how, you know, bringing people into your team or into your work that can really speak across different disciplines, speak across um, different languages and, and methodologies is really important to serve as kind of connectors that can make your project much more solid. And I think that is especially true in when you're talking about impact, um, understanding different groups of people's views on what desired impacts are, um, you know, knowing how to uh, interpret those perspectives into the project itself. All of these things require kind of a team effort, I would think. Yeah, I think think a team effort and a collective effort, because going back to the communications point, it's important to recognize that communications is not dissemination, right? Communication is not just sharing the information you have with others and it ends there. Communication is actually sharing what you have um, to inform others, but also to learn from others and to receive feedback from them. So really communications is something that has to start at the beginning when you do engage with 
those who need the change, but it's something that goes on throughout. And that can be with, you know, the, the people we're doing the research with, but also, as you're saying, within this, this broader team. Um, so yeah, communication and collaboration, if you do have a team, is key. So going back to kind of best practices and, and then on the flip side, uh, so are there things that people should or researchers should absolutely avoid doing when writing the research impact section of a proposal or when doing the work itself? Um, well, if, if <laughs> it's a good question here, um, if, if I'm going to try to stay positive, um, I think one thing that's really important is to maintain um, humility. And, and that's humility in terms of, of the dynamics of, uh, again, the people, your stakeholders, the people who you're engaging with. Um, you know, some people would call them research subjects, which may be fine as you're writing your proposal. Um, but I think when you actually get into the, the dynamics of the research, that they can't just be subjects. They have to actually be actors um, in the research itself. So I think maintaining that humility is, is really important. Um, that also goes to, again, this idea of being realistic. So do be ambitious, but also be realistic in terms of what you can actually do. Um, that doesn't mean, and in fact, I, I listened to the first podcast with Chan Lee Singh, who I thought did a great job. Um, but she mentioned, you know, starting small. Um, so I would say that's a great, great piece of advice, but I'll start small, but also keep in mind the bigger picture. So how can your, your research fit into that bigger picture? Um, and I think those are two things to kind of keep in mind. So instead of the negatives, I would say those two. So going back to uh, something Chandy said as well, uh, and I think there's a dimension of kind of time in this also, but something that came up in our calls was that something um, or a lot of researchers kind of feel this level of discomfort or this helpless feeling um, when you know, you're working with communities, again, that are experiencing these really, really um, intense challenges. And there, there are things that are being, that are evolving very quickly. Uh, and the consequences of these challenges, uh, you know, are very uh, immense and really grave in certain cases. Um, I'm thinking specifically, you know, with certain climate-related uh, impacts, you know, extended droughts, um, heat stress, uh, severe flooding, things that really impact on people's daily lives in a really heavy way. Um, and then, you know, when you're trying to think about the impact of your little research project, um, and especially if it's a project that goes, you know, for a year or two or maybe even less than that, do you have any any thoughts on how people can kind of, I mean, I know, you know, you said, you know, no one person can do everything, but how, what would you say to people kind of dealing with those feelings when they're writing this, this piece of their work? Um, what would I say to them? I would say that's perfectly normal <laughs> that, um, you know, we're all just trying to put in our, you know, collective grain of sand to, to tackling these, these wicked challenges. Um, and, you know, even to, to add to what you've just said is that, you know, the clock's ticking faster every minute here against all of these challenges. Um, but I don't think that's a reason then to, to kind of lose faith. I think that, 
you know, collectively, um, we can make the world better than it is now. I think we have to, we, at least we have to strive to that. Um, so I, I think that's very important. And again, it goes back to this idea of this, this humility, um, and, and also this realism, um, if, you know, even if you can help in, improve, let's say, water management practices of a rural community or of a city or of a neighborhood, um, you know, that's actually still helping. So even if you're just getting people to, to manage their water more sensibly in very hyper-local sense, that's great. And I would say that's even much better than some high-level, very interesting academic research that just gets put on a shelf somewhere. And so it's kind of, um, I think, yeah, what you said is really important. And it, it goes back to some of the things we've touched on already, too, in this podcast is, you know, becoming like recognizing yourself as a researcher in this much broader community of not only, you know, researchers and practitioners that share your care and concern for these problems and that are also having these feelings, um, you know, but that, but it also just in the, of the world in general and, and people that are facing these problems, you know, and so doing your part to kind of fill out this tapestry of efforts, uh, is not a small thing and it, and it's really important. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's an important point. Uh, so looking at the situation we're in now with, um, COVID-19 and coronavirus, uh, do you have any kind of uh, thoughts on how this might be changing the way that people think about the impacts of their work right now? Um, or is it changing anything about the way this type of work happens? I mean, that's a big question, but uh, but just some thoughts on that. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, COVID-19 has, has definitely, um, changed, I think, many people's outlook, um, on the urgency. And I find that so interesting, um, because the COVID crisis has, um, heightened people's understanding of urgency, but not just with responding to COVID. But and actually in these wicked challenges I mentioned before, climate change, biodiversity loss, and this social and economic inequality, I think the COVID crisis has, has really piqued people's interest in making sure that things happen and they happen fast. Um, this is also true that there's other uh, kind of convergences happening in terms of the post 2020 global biodiversity framework. Um, other things in the, in the UNFCCC that are kind of coming together. But I think the sense of urgency is really actually um, bringing people together to, to create action, which then, of course, brings into the research impact um, discourse. So I think there is this, this goes back, I guess, to one of the first questions, there's this increasing demand and need for research impact, but also in the short term, because a lot of, much funding has been um, redistributed uh, to actually focus on whether it's looking for a vaccine for, for COVID or antivirals or just researching into many different aspects that are related to it from supply chains um, to factors for actually um, how it's you know passed on and in which context is it most contagious. Um, so I think those are all many things that are happening now. I think in terms of carrying out research, obviously, 
that research proposals um, that are intended to actually go to, let's say, to the field or, or to work on the ground with communities um, or, or kind of field sites um, that you need to also plan for doing a lot more work online virtually. Um, and if you can do it in on the ground or in person, face to face, that it may take more time. I think those are two, yeah, two things to keep in mind, I guess, as you're developing proposals. Yeah, I think right now too, you know, just speaking to that point, you know, I'm seeing in the work that I do with Start, you know, and going back to those people that you can use as connectors, kind of, or that can serve as connectors, not that you can use, but um, with your work. Uh, so especially in this time when you know, you yourself may not be able to travel to as many places to do the same types of in-person work uh, as you could have, say, last year. Um, but that, you know, it's letting us kind of come up with new creative ways of of still engaging with different people um, kind of through all these tools that we have available right now, even though not everyone has equitable access to those tools. Um, one thing before I move on, when we're talking about this urgency to get things done and urgency to, um, you know, to kind of see impact or, uh, strive for impact, I think it begs this question of how do we track these efforts? So how do we know if all of this planning and the theories of change and the steps we're taking, how do we track impact both, um, how do we plan for tracking impact when we're writing a proposal, but you know, how do we do it during the work? And then, especially if it's a short project, how do you know after that project if, if your work is, is having the impact that you thought or wanted it to? Yes, good question. I mean, the, the, the simple answer would be um, monitoring, evaluation, and learning, um, with a focus more on the monitoring, which is the tracking, and then, of course, the learning to make sure that you're changing and, and adapting your research um, as needed, <clears throat> excuse me, as you go. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the simple answer. But to go into it a bit more, I mean, there, there are many examples of, of different types of monitoring and evaluation that you can do. I think one of the greatest examples, let's say, um, for this type, especially if you're looking at changing behavior um, or, or practices, which I would then even argue links to, to actually bringing about policy change because that's based on behavior, um, is that there's one called outcome mapping. And I mean, not to go into it really in, in detail, but what you do is you actually set some, let's say, process indicators, which would be your outcomes that you want to um, kind of the type of the quality of engagement you could have or the participation. And then you have interim um, outcomes as well that help you trigger what you'll do next in terms of the research. So you're kind of always um, working towards your intended impacts, but you're able to to track it as you go and you're able to, to actually um, adjust as you're working through your research program. Um, outcome mapping itself is really quite, a, a, I mean, an intense methodology but there are kind of light factors or light ways to do it. Um, and another one is you can even just kind of plan into your research, maybe reflection moments, um, you know, whether it's kind of quarterly or six monthly, or if you do have an event where you, um, an event where you invite people to actually contribute to challenge your assumptions, for example, then you could reflect after that to, to make sure you're on the right course and you can adjust as you go. Great. Uh, 
we're getting closer to uh, the end of our time here, but I wanted to give you a moment. Do you have um, just any parting thoughts on the current or future state of research for impact uh, or scientific proposals in general? Um, I'm sure I could come up with something. <laughs> Um, no, I, I did actually, I wanted to make a comment before I go to a parting thought um, on, on your comment about connectors, mm -hmm. because actually I think that's that's a really important piece. Um, and in fact, if I, if I refer back to these five elements, five elements of research for impact, um, is that we actually, one of the elements is stakeholder engagement, which I think we've touched on quite a bit, and strategic partnerships. Um, and so it's exactly that. It's actually working through partners um, who can help you actually reach out to to support the research um, and whether that's opening up the right the right doors or communication channels with individuals or with groups or representatives um, I think that's really important in that strategic partnership um, like you had mentioned within the context of COVID maybe you are stuck doing your research home-based but if you can develop or if you have those strategic partnerships, again, whether it be with individuals, organizations, they can still help you actually um, get that much closer, you know, to the field research that you need. Um, so anyway, that's just an interesting point that, that I was thinking of, um, this the, the value of strategic partnerships, let's say, in times of COVID. Yeah, I think, um, you know, something that I've learned by working with you and um, Danielle when you guys were at Oxfam and then now you at Plan Adapt and, and Rios Partners in South Africa is a good example. You know, it's this real, um, just, it's very essential to have people that, you know, you trust and you work with that have access to communities, um, that have access to different stakeholder groups like policymakers, you know, that, that are well-trusted people in these spaces, um, that you are able to communicate with uh, frequently and openly because these are the types of people that can can make sure that you're including the right people. They're the types of people that can uh, help you check your assumptions, uh, that can you know give you a different perspective on on looking at a problem from a way that you hadn't thought of, uh, and can really in times like this where you can't go sometimes personally to different groups of people, um, they, you know, they can serve as a great kind of conduit for information between you and these different groups and to feed, you know, knowledge and information back from, from different people. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very important, um, if not essential. Um, and I know that you have mentioned a lot of different things today about, you know, the the pieces of research for impact, the the ways you can do it, building a theory of change, all these different bits, communication, um, strategic partnerships. And there's a lot of pieces that people might have questions about. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to please reach out on Start Social Media or on Twitter, uh, on Facebook on our website or at the email address startcast at start.org because next week for episode five, we are aiming to have a listener feedback episode and we would love to feature uh, listener questions uh, on this topic or any of the topics that we've talked about so far in the podcast. Uh, 
Um, and also, I just want, again, for you to have a chance to tell people about the online course, because I think that's also a place um, where if someone really wants to dive in deep, they could they could do that. Yeah, I mean, well, first, I mean, thanks for, for all of that, Mary. I mean, the part about the Planet Adapt, the Rios, and I'd also add in there the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Center. Yes. I, I think they're in that boat, and they do some great work, too. Um but yes, I mean, so the course that we have is is a course that was actually um, based on the carrier uh, experience and the SR experience that we mentioned before. But what we've done is with the University of Cape Town and the African Climate and Development Initiative at, at the University of Cape Town um, in Oxfam, we developed a, an, a free online course um, called Research for Impact. And it looks at the five elements of of research for impact and what we do is we actually provide a bit on kind of the principles what's behind it uh, move into some examples of that and try to bring down some case studies based on real experiences from from early um, and mid-career researchers as well who are a part of of the carrier um, program and i mean not because i'm a part of it but we've received some really good feedback from it so far um, and it's really just about how accessible it is that while we address really technical issues, um, we use really kind of accessible language. Um, so I've heard some really good feedback about that. Um, but there's also other resources out there. I know Start has some great work, and obviously you've been working in a long time doing um, awareness raising and strengthening capacity of academic research um, in the natural and social sciences. So that's great. Um, there's Fast Track Impact from Mark Reed, mm -hmm. um, which is also a very good resource. And... Um, then the department, or I guess the, the department formerly known as the Department for International Development and DFID, now again known as the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, um, also has some good materials on research into use that we, we took from the start of the SR project and helped kind of modify them as we went with our own learning and, and kind of feedback into them, which led us to, to the online course that you've mentioned here, um, which is available on the Coursera platform. Great. Thanks so much. And I will uh, do my best to include as many of the links to these different uh, opportunities and projects and resources as possible in the show notes for this episode that you can find on our website, uh, start.org. So I guess we're out of time now, Jesse, even though we could probably talk about this for a, a much longer time. But thank you so much for participating in the Startcast. And I think this is going to be a really helpful episode for a lot of people that are um, finding this piece a bit challenging right now. Great. Well, thank you very much, Mary. It's been a pleasure to be on the, the Startcast and a pleasure to, to chat with you about it. And good luck to everyone out there who's working on this. Um, you know, it isn't easy, but um, it's obviously needed. And like I said before, I think it's important that we all we all do our part. Definitely. Well, all right. Thank you, Jesse. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Startcast is produced by Start International. If you would like more information about Start, please visit www.start.org. To give feedback on this episode, or if you have a question for Start or today's guest, please email us at startcast at start.org.